Hello, my name is Lily Chaudhry, and you're listening to Happiness Now, Secrets to Success from the East and West. This podcast is all about empowering us to achieve happiness and success in every aspect of our life. And we'll discover some of the wisdom that's found in different cultures about this topic. These talks are based on the works of Ghazim Ali Shah. He's a renowned teacher, trainer, and motivational speaker and author for over 15 years based in Lahore, Pakistan. So today's topic is happy relationships. We'll discuss some of the reasons that we all get into marriages and partnerships in the first place. And then we'll talk about selecting a good partner, learning some human psychology, appreciation, criticism, being proactive, and rebounding forces. Okay, so let's start with asking a really basic question. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do anything at all in life? The answer will be that anything that we do out of our own free will will either be to avoid some kind of pain or to gain some kind of pleasure or happiness. And when we talk about relationships, our marriages, our partnerships, why do we even bother with them? Again, it's to gain some type of happiness. But do all marriages become that source of happiness? Do all partnerships end in living happily ever after? Initially, marriages do bring a lot of happiness. If you see all the pictures and videos of weddings, you'll see nothing but happiness. This usually continues right after the marriage as well. But then that bonding and love gets weaker as the years go by. Some studies show that between 40 to 50% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. And of the marriages that do remain, some experts say that a large chunk of those is because of societal pressures or because of kids. Love is seldom the reason. And Qasim Ali Shah says in Pakistan, this figure could be as high as 80 to 90. That's 80 to 90% of marriages that are together, maybe so because of family or societal pressures or because of kids. I think we all know couples who have emotionally separated, but are only together physically in the same home. I can say that I personally know many people, family and friends, who are in their marriage because of their kids. Nothing else is really keeping them together. And that's their personal choice. But it is clear that their feelings of love seem to have vanished in the very early days or years of marriage, and now they're almost stuck in their relationships. In her article, Marriage and Happiness, 18 Long-Term Studies for Psychology Today, Dr. Bella DiPaolo summed up research findings like this. Satisfaction with life did increase from just before the wedding to just after, but then it decreased continually over time. So marriages very often fail to give us long-term happiness, which is what they're meant to give, because most of us are never fully prepared to make, accept, and protect them the way that we should. And that's our topic for today. Most of us marry in our mid-20s to late-30s. The average age for marriage in the U.S. is 28, meaning that we have more than a good 40 years of life to go at that point. And that's supposed to be a life together with our companions. And it's a shame if this period is one of misery, trial, pressure, compulsion, instead of a harmonious, happy, and peaceful one. And it's also a shame if the only reason keeping that bond together is the birth of children. So why does this happen so often? It might be because we never really learn how to create and maintain happiness and harmony. Learning to build a family is usually not what we think about when we get married. It's never the strongest motivation we have to get married. Sometimes it's love or libido that dominates the drive to get married. 
But today we'll discuss some of the key tools that are important to make the Institute of Marriage or Partnership stronger. But before we get into some of these tools and rules, let's discuss the first and foremost important factor in a happy relationship, and that is selecting a partner. One of the very basic questions that we should be asking ourselves is what kind of person we're looking for to spend the rest of our lives with. And if we think about it, logically, this decision should be made more practically than emotionally. I mean, when we shop for the most ordinary things, we usually put some thought behind it. So imagine how serious the search should be when we're talking about our life's companion. And we're talking about the best part of our lives here, when we're young, strong, and able. We spend our childhood and adolescence with our parents, our families. We can't really decide on who we're going to spend those years with. But it's in our adulthood when we can make a choice. And who are we going to choose to give these precious years to? These are the years that we have the best physical strength, stability of mind, ability to earn, the years where we make the biggest progress. So these are the best years of our life that we're going to give to someone. But if we pick the wrong partner, they can turn into the worst years of our life. Okay, before we get too depressed, um, let's keep this in mind. that, And this is a very important point. Although we can do our best to decide who we choose, we should remember that all things are in God's hands. But He has given us the free will to choose wisely. Personally, before I met my husband, I remember I was probably praying for a good two years, asking God to give me a good partner. And I mean really praying. And, you know, this is after I had some rough experiences of my own and seeing those of my friends and family. I knew how important a life partner is for my future and the future of any children I would have. So, yeah, I was praying hard, like getting up in the early hours of the morning and really any time of day that I could remember. But, you know, something this big, I think, is worth it. So in our search for the perfect mate, we should try not to be shallow. We should be looking for something deeper and more meaningful. Although attraction is important, we shouldn't make that the main factor in choosing someone. Because temporary pleasures are just that, they're temporary. We're going to get them at any rate, regardless of who we choose. But it's those things that are skin deep that really last. And when we marry someone, we end up living with their habits. And habits make up someone's character. So in fact, it's their character that's the most important thing. If the element of good character is missing, the partnership will definitely lack in harmony and happiness. A human can spend a hundred years with a person with good character and average looks, but most of us don't want to spend even 10 minutes with someone who has bad character, even if they have a pretty face. But a good solid relationship should be one that even after three, four decades of being together, you wonder, oh, where did the time go? So those few decades seem like a few years and the love is still there and is still strong. If the Institute of Marriage was not of any benefit to mankind, it wouldn't have survived thousands of years of our existence, where the end result should be happiness. But it is here, and religions and human experiences have advocated and promoted its importance and effectiveness in giving people stability and peace of mind, where the end result should be happiness. And if that's really true, then there should be some rules and tools that help ensure the success of this institution. If our marriages or relationships aren't giving us peace and happiness, we may need to think of our own role in the partnership and first ask ourselves, are we ready to change? So once we've decided on a partner, let's look at six things that we can do to help us have happier and stronger relationships. The first is learning human psychology. 
Now, this is important for everyone, whether we're married, unmarried, single, divorced, dating, whatever. We all have to try and understand and study human psychology, at least somewhat. Without understanding human psychology, we can't deal well with humans in general, let alone a relationship. Gossam Ali Shah and probably every other relationship expert today recommends the reading of the phenomenally popular book, which has sold over 50 million copies around the world, called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. If you haven't read this amazing book by John Gray, I strongly urge you to. Me and my husband got this book a few years ago, and we started reading it together. I remember just after a few pages of reading it together, we ended up learning a lot. It was actually amazing how well the author seems to understand the feelings of men and the feelings of women. And it was eye-opening to learn how many of our feelings were based on the fact that we're either men or women. And it's not due to some specific situation that we often think. There are so many times in the book where I would read something and I thought, I thought that was just my husband. Turns out most men are like this. And he said the same thing. He would say, oh my God, I thought it was just you who are like this. Turns out a lot of women think this way. This book teaches us how men and women are different in their thinking and behavior. The entire premise of the book is based on the fact that men and women are entirely different and that we should treat our partner differently than what we would want for ourselves. We should treat them the way that they want to be treated. We might get into the details of this book in another podcast, but here are a few examples of the differences between the sexes that John Gray points out. Number one, women need and want caring, understanding, and respect. But what men need the most is trust, acceptance, and appreciation. Number two, women wanting to talk out a problem is the way that she deals with it, whereas a man prefers to retreat and try to solve the problem on their own. Number three, women want appreciation for their input, for what they say, whereas men want appreciation for their skills more. No matter how trivial their achievements are, men will often think that they're huge, and they need that recognition and praise from their partners. You know, when we first make a purchase, like a new phone, we make quite an effort to learn about its features, its abilities, its apps. But when it comes to our life partner who is priceless, someone who's part of our lives, who we are the most vulnerable with and share the most of ourselves with, we never really take the time to learn or understand them. Back to the phone example. If we think, how can we use our phones more effectively? When we understand all of its functions, of course, that's when we can use our device in the best way possible. And if we learned in detail about all the features that it came with, imagine how much better our experience would be. And the same goes for our partners. And on the other hand, if we start expecting something from it, which it's not made for, like what if we start thinking of our phones as a toaster oven? We start expecting our phones to toast our bagels. What would the result be? Obviously disappointment. Similarly, we should only expect from our partners those things that they're able to give. Okay, maybe not the best example, but I'm sure you get what I'm trying to say here. Normally, expectations in marriages mean those comforts, those joys that we hope to get from our partners constantly, regularly. But we should take the time to compare what we expect with those things that we know our partner has to give. Are our expectations even within their capabilities? And we should learn how to adjust these and adjust ourselves based on what our partners can provide for us. That is, if we want to stay in the relationship and make it work. So learning human psychology and the psychology of our partners is essential. The next factor we'll discuss is appreciation. The best tool by far for a happy marriage is appreciation. 
all great preachers and teachers like the late Dale Carnegie, who was a great author and teacher of self-help and relationship training, advises us this, learn to appreciate. Carnegie's books are still very popular today, and one of the core ideas in his books is that it is possible to change other people's behavior by changing one's own behavior towards them. In a 2012 journal article called Gratitude Promotes Relationship Maintenance in Intimate Bonds, researchers said that people who feel appreciated by their romantic partners become more appreciative of their partners themselves. And people who show more appreciation to their partner report also being more responsive to their partner's needs. My husband and I by no means have an ideal relationship. I mean, we have our ups and downs like most couples. But one thing I can say is that we both try to say thank you often. But, you know, then again, it is easy to say thanks when somebody hands you a drink or buys you something nice. I think it's actually more important to have an overall appreciative attitude and be grateful in a deeper sense, meaning not complaining about the little things. And that's a lot harder to do than just saying thank you. For most of us, it's not hard to find fault in our partners. But most of us do have a hard time regularly praising or appreciating their good qualities and then doing it in a proper way. We should try and take some time every day to think of things that we can praise our partners for. Unfortunately, we tend to do the opposite. We magnify their weaknesses and minimize their strengths. There's a rule that says that if we appreciate someone for two positive qualities they have, there's a good chance that that person will develop a third because they were appreciated for those other two. The third factor is criticizing or learning how to criticize. And we'll look at two healthy ways that we can do this. The first way to criticize our partners in a healthy and constructive way is called the sandwich method of criticism. That is, whenever we want to disparage our partner, we first start with some sort of appreciation. Say something good about them, like, hey, you're so nice for cleaning up last night, or I couldn't have asked for a better parent to my kids. Anyway, then we add our criticism somewhere in the middle. And then we conclude with another dose of appreciation. Now, this isn't, God forbid, some kind of hypocrisy. No, we should be honest about what we're saying. Both the appreciation and the criticism. But by doing it in this way, the person we're addressing is not going to be hurt by our words. Because direct criticism can be much harder to digest when it's given on its own by itself. The second method is indirect criticism. This can be risky in some cases, um, and we have to be pretty sharp to criticize indirectly because in this method, what happens is we take whatever message it is that we're trying to give to our partners and just direct it to someone else. Sort of like telling your husband something about your friend's husband, but you're actually really talking about your husband. <laughs> but some people can get offended even by indirect criticism. To avoid that, we can try to blend criticism with lots of other diversions, like other topics in the conversation. And whatever method of criticism we decide to use in the end, let's remember not to create a fight over it. The last thing we want to do is argue over the message we're trying to convey to our partner. Because fighting not only fails to deliver our message, but creates bad blood between us, making the relationship even worse. The fourth tool or factor we'll talk about is being proactive. This is really important for the success of any relationship. And there are different ways of doing this. Many things need to be planned and rehearsed. As the saying goes, plan for the worst, but hope for the best. For example, if we know of any glaring issues that we have with our partners, we can kind of plan ahead to see how we can avoid them. Some things in life are worth a fight. And if we decide that our relationships 
are worth it, and if we do believe in death do us part, or that we're determined to find a solution to any problem that arises, then we should prepare ourselves and plan for uncertainties and put on a suit of armor and be ready for whatever comes ahead. Because troubles will come in any relationships, and it can only help to be proactive and try plan ahead. Another way to be proactive is for both partners to be constantly learning and growing. This could be things like taking classes together or being part of a project or reading books or attending talks or doing new activities, learning new skills for a job or for the home or for some other project. The point is that for both partners to be growing, not necessarily as professionals only, but as human beings. As Oprah says, when you know better, you do better. An important point to remember about being proactive is this. Sometimes our work has no immediate rewards. We should learn to do positive things accepting the fact that the rewards could come after many years. An example of this could be like saving money. If we agreed with our partner to start saving just 5% of our incomes together and put it towards a future trip or project or something, the reward for that will be slowly growing. All the while, both partners are doing something positive together and when the time comes, the reward will be great. And this goes for any positive thing that we determine to do consistently together. And the last tool we'll talk about is rebounding forces. And these are things that we can have in common that we do with our partner that reunite us and then will ultimately reunite us. And it could be the same activities we talked about in being proactive like a hobby that both partners work on together, or maybe experiencing things together, traveling together. But to have a rebounding force means that even years later, this will help bring us together as a couple. It's something that we can enjoy together now and in the future. Lately, I've actually been bugging my husband to start on a project with me. And it's not just something we can do as a family, but it's something that I want to do that can help other people. And I'm hoping that that aspect of it will give it more meaning and give us more incentive to really work on it. But we're still in the planning phases, so I'm still hoping something comes out of it. But because this would be a long-term project, this could potentially be a rebounding force. Probably the most basic example of a rebounding force is having good, meaningful, positive conversations. Unfortunately, many of us have the habit of getting into discussions that are full of complaining, criticizing, arguing, and obviously, these are not meaningful, they're not positive, and they're not helpful for any relationship. And even if it doesn't come naturally sometimes, we can bring up something positive. Things like books or future goals or dreams and have a discussion on those. Or even the love of our children can act as a reuniting and rebounding force. It's something we'll always have in common with our partner and because families are so important to most people. Should give us some kind of bond with our partners. So we'll have this force uniting us now and later and possibly ending in the couple happily staying united as a family. So in conclusion, we have to start thinking about the ultimate success and happiness of our long-term partnerships in the very early days of when we're searching and selecting our partners, and then take the time to learn about them. Learn about human psychology, about men and women, how we differ, and some of the other tools that we can learn to give us more happiness are appreciating each other, criticizing in a healthy way, being proactive, and having in place rebounding forces. And I'll conclude today's podcast with one of the ending messages of Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. To keep the magic of love alive, we must be flexible and adopt to the ongoing changing seasons of love. 
So a relationship is like a garden. If it's to thrive, it must be watered regularly in every season, meaning we should be tending to it differently, but still tend to it. The spring of love is falling in love. Everything seems perfect. Summer is working on the relationship because we see that it's not so perfect. In fall, we have the harvest, the results of our work. And in winter, we have solitary growth. We all need some time alone. And then spring starts all over again. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We hope you'll continue tuning in. We post a new podcast every Sunday. We welcome your comments and questions. You can message us on our website, www.happinessnowpodcast.com or contact us through Facebook. So until next time, take care and take control. 